As uh, most of you know, we've been doing something of a survey of the Old Testament, the, uh, the books of the Old Testament, particularly the first ones, and we looked at Genesis, we looked at Exodus, we looked at Leviticus, and now we're going to look at Numbers. And in Numbers, we have a chapter that is something of a summary of the stages of the journey of Numbers. So number is something like a travelogue of the people of God. And in Numbers 33, which is what I'm going to read in preparation for the sermon, in Numbers 33, we have a summary of the travels of the people of God. And this will uh, give you something of a flavor of Numbers. So Numbers 33. And give careful attention to God's Word as it's read. These are the stages of the people of Israel when they went out of the land of Egypt by their companies under the leadership of Moses and Aaron. Moses wrote down their starting places, stage by stage, by command of the Lord. And these are the stages according to their starting places. They set out from Ramses in the first month on the fifteenth day of the first month. On the day after the Passover, the people of Israel went out triumphantly in the sight of all the Egyptians, while the Egyptians were burying all their firstborn whom the Lord had struck down among them. On their gods also the Lord executed judgments. So the people of Israel set out from Ramses and camped at Sukkoth. And they set out from Sukkoth and camped at Etham, which is on the edge of the wilderness. And they set out from Etham and turned back to Pi-Hararoth, which is east of Baal-Zephon, and they camped before Migdol. And they set out from before Hararoth, and passed through the midst of the sea into the wilderness, and they went a three days' journey in the wilderness of Etham, and camped at Marah. And they set out from Marah, and came to Elim. And from Elim, and at Elim there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they camped there. And they set out from Elim, and camped by the Red Sea. And they set out from the Red Sea, and camped in the wilderness of Sin. And they set out from the wilderness of Sin, and camped at Dovka. And they set out from Dovka, and camped at Alush. And they set out from Alush, and camped at Rephidim, where there was no water for the people to drink. And they set out from Rephidim, and camped in the wilderness of Sinai. And they set out from the wilderness of Sinai, and camped at Kibroth Hataava. And they set out from Kibroth Hataava and set camped at Hazaroth. And they set out from Hazaroth and camped at Rithma. And they set out from Rithma and camped at Rimon Perez. And they set out from Rimon Perez and camped at Libna. And they set out from Libna and camped at Rissa. And they set out from Rissa and camped at Kehalatha. And they set out from Kehalatha and camped at Mount Shepher. And they set out from Mount Shepher and camped at Harada. And they set out from Harada and camped at Makaloth. And they set out from Makaloth and camped at Tahath. And they set out from Tahath and camped at Terah. And they set out from Terah and camped at Mithka. And they set out from Mithka and camped at Hashmano. And they set out from Hashmana and camped at Maseroth. And they set out from Maseroth and camped at Benejaakan. And they set out from Benejaakan and camped at Hor Hagidgad. And they set out from Hor Hagidgad and camped at Jathbatha. And they set out from Jathbatha and camped at Abranah, and they set out from Abranah and camped at Ezion Geber, and they set out from Ezion Geber and camped in the wilderness of Zin, that is Kedish, and they set out from Kedish and camped at Mount Hor on the edge of the land of Edom. And Aaron the priest went up Mount Hor at the command of the Lord and died there. In the fortieth year after the people of Israel had come out of the land of Egypt, on the first day of the fifth month, and Aaron was 123 years old when he died on Mount Hor. And the Canaanite, the king of Ahad, who lived in the Negeb, in the land of Canaan, heard of the coming of the people of Israel. And they set out from Mount Hor and camped at Zalmanah, and they set out from Zalmanah and camped at Punan, 
And they set out from Punan and camped at Oboth, and they set out from Oboth and camped at Aye Abiram in the territory of Moab, and they sent out from Ayim and camped at Dibon Gad, and they set out from Dibon Gad and camped at Alman Diplathayim, and they set out from Alman Diplathayim and camped in the mountains of Abiram before Nebo, and they set out from the mountains of Abiram and camped in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho. They camped by the Jordan from Beth Jeshemoth as far as Abel Shittim in the plains of Moab. And the Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan of Jericho, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you pass over the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out all of the inhabitants of the land from before you and destroy all their figured stones and destroy all their metal images and demolish all their high places. And you shall take possession of the land and settle in it, for I have given the land to you to possess it. You shall inherit the land by lot according to your clans. To a large tribe you shall give a large inheritance, and to a small tribe you shall give a small inheritance. Wherever the lot falls for anyone, that shall be his. According to the tribes of your fathers you shall inherit. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then those of them whom you let remain shall be as barbs in your eyes and thorns in your sides, and they shall trouble you in the land where you dwell. And I will do to you as I thought to do to them. Let's pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. One of my favorite courses in college was called Number Theory. Number Theory. It wasn't one of the most popular courses. I was a math major, and this was a course, the whole semester was about the theory of numbers. What are they? And how do they work? And it was a fascinating course. But as I say, not one of the most popular. In fact, the math major was not the most popular major as well. Many people are not numbers people. I'm fascinated by numbers. I'm fascinated by the number two, the only even prime number that there is. I'm fascinated by the idea of irrational numbers that can't be made as fractions, but they keep going on for all of eternity. Uh, I'm fascinated by the number pi. I'm fascinated by a number of numbers, but I know that I'm in the minority. And so when you come to a book that's called Numbers, it's probably not the first book that you want to open and say, oh boy, I wonder what that's about. I want to read that book about numbers. Well, the traditional Jewish name is not Numbers. The traditional Jewish name is a little more captivating, and it is also more descriptive. It is this, in the desert, in the desert. Uh, that comes from the very first verse of Numbers. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness or in the desert of Sinai. This is a description, a log, a travel log of the journeys of the people of God in where? In the desert, in the wilderness, exactly. Now, let's review where we've been. We looked at Genesis. Genesis took us from the beginning of creation up to the death of Joseph in Egypt. Exodus took us from the uh, death of Joseph up to Mount Sinai, where the people had 
gotten out of Egypt, crossed the Red Sea, and they camped at Mount Sinai, and God had given them, given them the law and the Ten Commandments. And then we had something of a uh, historic interlude where we looked at Leviticus, and Leviticus talked about how they were to uh, minister in the temple, or the tabernacle rather, that was set up at the very end of Exodus. And so now we're ready to pick up the story once again. So here we are at Mount Sinai. Uh, the people have received the law. The Levites have been told how to minister in the tabernacle. And now we're ready to move on. And so that's what the book of Numbers or the book of In the Desert is. And uh, as you can tell, there's something of a, a repetition in this, uh, this book. As I read through uh, chapter 33, it was hard to read and it was probably harder to listen to. Uh, because it's simply telling where the people went, where they camped, then where they went, there and then when they went, uh, next and next and next. And what we have in this book is this. The first ten chapters are organizing the people for the camp. Organizing the camp so that they can travel up the Sinai Peninsula and take the promised land that God had promised to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. So the first ten chapters are, are organizing the people. And that's where the name Numbers comes from. Because they do a census of the people. Chapter 1 is a census of the people. And you will find many numbers there. And you will find that these numbers of the men, 20 years and older, keep that in mind, the men, 20 years and older, they numbered over 600,000. So this was a significant population moving through the desert. Over 600,000 men, 20 years and older. And then what they did was, they organized the camp. If you're going to move that many people, and that's not even counting the women and the children and the animals, if you're going to move that many people through the desert, you need an arrangement. And so what they did is they arranged the people in a something like a floating rectangle, a rectangle that would move. And in the middle of the rectangle was the tabernacle that they had built. And then there was the tribe of Levi around the tabernacle. That's where they camped. And then there were the other tribes camped in a rectangle around the tabernacle. And what we have here is a uh, concentric levels of holiness. The Holy of Holies, the most holy place in the tabernacle. Then there's the holy place. Then there's the courtyard. Then there are the Levites to, to protect. There's something like a buffer between the rest of the world and, and the presence of God. Then the, the holy people, the, the Israelites, and then the nations. And that's how they were to move through the desert. And uh, in, uh, after each tribe uh, gave its gifts, which we have in chapter 7, then God filled the tabernacle, and now they were ready to go. Everything was ready for this, this, this impressive rectangle of holiness to move up the, the Sinai Peninsula and take the promised land. Everything's going well. And I'd love to tell you, I'd love to tell you that that's just what happened. In a matter of a few days or a few weeks, they were able to, to go up the Sinai Peninsula and take the land that God had given them. But that's not what happened. What happened is, in chapters 11 through 25, we have a series of rebellions of the people. They rebel ten different times, chapters 11 to 25. And what I'm going to do is summarize those rebellions, because those rebellions are actually very instructive for us. So you ready? How many are there? Ten. Okay, ten rebellions. The first rebellion, the people grumbled about their difficulties. Now, they had been slaves in Egypt. They were not unaccustomed to difficulties, but they were grumbling about their difficulties in the desert. And so God punished them with fire in the camp. 
Now, you can imagine how terrible that would be for fire to break out in the camp. But Moses interceded for them, Moses prayed for them, and God extinguished the fires. That's the first, the first rebellion. That's in chapter 11. Immediately after that, immediately after the, 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 the fires are, are quenched, there's another rebellion because they grumbled about the manna. Do you remember the manna? What's manna? Bread from heaven. And it means, what is it? When it first fell, the people said, manna, which means, what is it? And that's what they called their bread. It was called, what is it? But they grumbled about it. They were getting tired of it already. And so they grumbled about it, and they demanded meat. They wanted some meat in their diet. And so, God sent them a flock of birds uh, that descended on the camp, and they were able to kill, and they were able to eat meat. But he sent also on the grumblers a plague, and many of them died. In the third rebellion, we have uh, three siblings. We have Aaron, we have Miriam, and we have Moses. And who's the main leader of those three? Moses. Well, older brother and sister weren't so happy about that. And so Aaron and Miriam, they rose up against Moses. And God rebuked them. And God caused Miriam to have a a skin disease for a week. And once again, Moses prayed for them, and God healed her. The fourth rebellion. Now, this is one of the most, if I could say, important rebellions, because this marked the the history of the people uh, ever after. What had happened was this. Moses sent 12 spies up into the Promised Land. He got one spy from each tribe. He sent 12 spies up into the Promised Land to go look at it and to see if the land was good, and, and how they could take the land, and so on. Well, the ten tribes came back, or the ten spies came back, and lo and behold, they reported that it was an excellent land. They were all in agreement that it was an excellent land uh, that the Lord had promised to them. So far, so good. Now, let's look at Numbers chapter 13, and see how this went after their report. So far, so good. You think everybody's excited. The Lord has given us a great, uh, a great land. It says in verse 25 of chapter 13, at the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land. And they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kedesh. They brought back words to them and to the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told them, we came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Everything's sounding great, isn't it? But then they went on. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw there the descendants of Anak. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites dwell in the hill country, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people. He was one of the spies He quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people we saw in it are of great height. And we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who came from the Nephilim. These were some giants. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. So ten of them brought back this report and said, we can't do it. They're bigger, they're stronger than we are, we can't do it. And only two of them, Caleb and Joshua, said, of course we can do it. Why can we do it? Because the Lord has promised this land to us. Let's go right up and let's take this land like the Lord promised. 
But these ten spies discouraged the people, and the whole congregation raised a loud cry. And it says they wept that night, and they grumbled, get used to that word by the way, grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Now, um, God was uh, ready to destroy them once again. This is not the first time or the last time. But once again, what happened? Moses prayed for them. And Moses' argument often went like this. It often went like this. And he had this very intimate relationship with God. God would say, Moses, I'm going to destroy these people. They're rebellious. Um, He would say, I'm going to destroy these, your people. And Moses would say, they're not my people. They're your people. They're your people. And, by the way, if you destroy these people now, word's going to get back to Egypt. And the people in Egypt and all the other nations are going to say that you couldn't do it. That was Moses' bold prayer with the Lord. And so the Lord pardoned them, but He also declared that not one of that generation, of those over 600,000 men, 20 years and older, not one of them would enter the promised land except for Joshua and Caleb. Of those 600-some thousand that came out of Egypt, only two would enter the promised land. And he said, for the 40 days that the spies were in the land, you will spend one year wandering in the desert. And so, chapter 33, that was hard to read and hard to listen to, I did that on purpose. Because it's repetitive, and it's uh, boring, and it is uh, depressing. Because if we looked at where these people were going, they were just wandering in the desert. They were doing loops in the desert. For 38 years after they had left Mount Sinai. So this book records those 38 years of wandering in the desert from Mount Sinai until they landed on the edge, the uh, eastern border of the River Jordan in the plains of Moab in order to cross over. So that's, we're only at the fourth rebellion, by the way. But this is why they, this is why they had to wander 38 more years in the desert because of their rebellion. Now the fifth rebellion. The people were distressed after this. And so they said, we have sinned, we've done wrong, you're right, Joshua and Caleb, let's go take the land. And Moses said, too late. You had your chance. You didn't do it when God told you to do it. Now it's too late. 38 more years, folks, until all of you die. They said, no, 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 we'll do it now. We can do it now. We'll go up. Certainly we can do this. And Moses said, the Lord is not with you. And lo and behold, they went up, and guess what happened? They got beaten badly easily repulsed, and uh, driven off easily. Then there was another rebellion. We're up to chapter 16. Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, they got 250 men to oppose Moses and Aaron. And in this case, God caused the earth to open up and swallow them up. Then in the seventh rebellion, the people grumbled against Moses and Aaron and said, you killed those 
those three men and those 250 men. It's your fault. So they grumbled against them again. And God spoke of destroying the people again and sent a plague. But this time Aaron interceded for them and God stopped the plague. The eighth rebellion. The people organized against Moses and Aaron because they didn't have water to drink. Um, And this is the second time. We saw this already in Exodus chapter 17. Right after they'd come out of Egypt, they didn't have water to drink and they grumbled. And uh, God told Moses to go to the rock and to strike the rock and out of the rock water flowed. Well, once again, similar procedure. uh, God said to Moses, Moses, take the same rod, take that staff with which you, you struck Egypt, with which I struck Egypt through you. Take that staff and go to the rock and this time tell the rock, speak to the rock to release water. But instead, Moses took that staff and he struck the rock twice. And water came out and the people drank. But God said to Moses, because you did not treat me as holy, then you will not enter the promised land either. Because he struck the rock instead of simply speaking to the rock. So that seventh rebellion, or that eighth rebellion rather, was very costly for Moses as well. The ninth rebellion. The people again spoke against Moses. And this time God sent venomous serpents into their midst. Moses, what did he do? You can guess. He prayed for them again. And God told Moses to make a bronze serpent like the serpents that were biting them, he said, make a figure of a bronze serpent and put it on a staff and hold it up in the air so that everybody can see it. Lift it up. And everybody who looks upon that bronze serpent serpent will be delivered. And that's how the people survived. And now, the Tenth Rebellion. The Tenth Rebellion, also very significant. All of them were significant, but this is, is one that marked the people uh, and is, is mentioned in the New Testament three times, the people committed immorality with the Moabite women. Now, they're getting close to the Moabites were cousins of the Israelites, and they're getting close to the promised land here. And the king of the Moabites, Balak, he hired a diviner, or something like a, a witch or a warlock or a spiritist uh, named Balaam. And he hired him, and he said, I want you to curse Israel. And so Balaam said, okay, accepted the the hiring to do that. But God intervened, and four times, instead of cursing Israel, he blessed Israel. And so that didn't work. So Balaam had another idea. He said, Balak, I know what you can do. I couldn't curse them. God didn't let me curse them. But women, women will get to them. And so that's what he did. He seduced them. Uh, The king of Moab seduced them with his women, and so the Israelite men fell into immorality and into idolatry. They not only went with the women, but they also went after the women's gods. Okay, that's that's the wandering in the desert. And now we get to chapter 26. And chapter 26 takes a positive turn, because after 40 years, that whole generation had died. So it was time for a new census. So we had a census in chapter 1, we have another census in chapter 26 because we've had a, a complete turnover of the men. All of the men of that first generation had died. So they did a new census. There were only three left. Joshua, Caleb, and Moses at this point. And Moses said, I need for you to raise up a replacement. 
I'm finished. And so God raised up Joshua as his replacement. And then, under Joshua's leadership, they fought the Midianites, and they won the battle. So at the end of the story, things are looking up. From chapter 26 to 36, no one dies. Uh, They're organizing themselves to enter into the promised land. So this is beginning to look positive. And they started talking about how they're going to distribute the land when they enter into it. So it looks like finally, finally, after these 40 years, they're able to enter the land. Now, this history is repetitive. This history is depressing. Uh, This history is uh, distressing because the people, time after time after time, keep falling into rebellion. And you would think a book like this would not be a popular book in the New Testament. But actually, it's surprising how many times this book shows up in the New Testament as a lesson for us who call ourselves believers in this age. Let's look at what the New Testament does with this. Three books, 2 Peter, Jude, and Revelation, all refer to the Balaam story. All of them refer to the Balaam story. And they warn us against the sin of Balaam. What is the sin of Balaam? The sin of Balaam is doing something wrong for the sake of money. And it warns us against that. Is that a sin that's disappeared from this world? On the contrary, is that a sin uh, from which we are exempt, that never is a temptation to us in any way? On the contrary. If we fall into doing anything, anything that we ought not to do for the sake of money, we've fallen into the sin of Balaam. And so this is a warning to us. And then, in addition to that, Paul uses this in in an extended way in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And he says... Think about these people in the desert. 1 Corinthians 10, it's on page 1059, if you'd like to turn there. He says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless... With most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. And then he says, These things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. See, this is a serious warning to us. And, and he's saying, he's, he's writing this to Christians who have been baptized, who have participated in the spiritual nourishment of the Lord's Supper. And he's saying, those people were baptized as they passed through the Jordan or through the Red Sea as well. Those people ate of the spiritual food as well. But most of them fell in the desert. You say they were professing believers. They were professing believers, but they did not make it to the end of the journey. 
because they were drawn aside by evil desires, by idolatry, by immorality, and by something as simple as grumbling. Grumbling. And he says at the end, there's an encouraging word though. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now, there's a little strange little expression in this chapter in verse 3. He says they, they ate the same spiritual, or they ate the same spiritual food, they drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. That's a strange expression, isn't it? He says there's a rock that followed him, and that rock was Christ. What's he referring to there? Well, if we go back to the story, I think we will understand what he's referring to, and we will understand why Moses' sin was so severe when he struck the rock twice when he was supposed to speak to it. If we go back to Exodus 17, we have the situation. The people complained, the people grumbled against the Lord, against Moses, and God said this, Assemble the elders of the people, take your staff, and go to the rock, and strike the rock, and water will flow out. So far, so good. But there's a little detail in that story that we need to take into account. And the detail is this. God said, I will be on that rock. You see, the, the, the roles are reversed here. The people were guilty of grumbling, but God is the one who put himself in the dock. And he assembled the elders as the jury to sit in judgment on him. And he said, Moses, take that staff that you used to to strike the, the wicked nation of Egypt and judge their gods and strike me with that rod with that rod so that water might flow out and the people might be spared. Do you see what's going on there? God is taking the place of the guilty people, and God is receiving the blow that the people deserved for their rebellion. God is receiving the punishment, and because he is the one who receives the punishment, the people receive the water of life. Now we can understand why, why Paul says, and the rock that followed them was whom? It was Christ. Because He's God who took the place of the people so that He might be struck and so the waters of life might flow. We just sang a song that inspired this. What's that song? Rock of Ages. Rock of Ages cleft or, or divided for me. Let me hide myself in Thee. Let the waters and the blood from Thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and power. And then we sing, Not the labors of my hands can fulfill Thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and Thou alone. We also say, Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. And if that's our confession of faith, then we can say, while I draw this fleeting breath, when my eyelids close in death, when I soar to worlds unknown, see thee on thy judgment throne. What's going to be my plea in that day? Rock of ages. Cleft for me, let me hide myself in Thee. And now we understand why it was such 
a severe thing that for a second time, for a second time Moses struck the rock. How many times does the rock, how many times does God need to be struck in order for Him to take the sins of His people? And the New Testament gives us a resounding answer. How many times does God need to receive the punishment of sinners so that sinners might go free? How many times? Once. But you see, Moses mistakenly applied the rod of God's own judgment to God once again, but God had already been judged in that first incident. And so Moses was barred from entering the promised land. Hebrews picks up this same theme, and we already read it in our Old Testament reading, but this is the, this is the narrative behind the whole book of Hebrews. If you, wanna, if you wanna understand the book of Hebrews, place yourself in the desert. Because that's where he places us Christians, and he says to us Christians, he says, we have come out of bondage to slavery. We've been liberated by God. But we haven't made it home yet. We haven't gotten to our final rest yet. And we don't want to be like those Israelites who, who came out of bondage and out of slavery, but, but they fell before they got to their, their promised rest. And that's why he says, today, if you hear His voice, don't harden your hearts like some of them did, but rather go on in faith. And that's the call of Hebrews. Don't fall along the wayside, but continue on day after day, moment after moment in faith. And he tells us how we can do that. Chapter 3, Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another, exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. You see, it's not just a question of how you begin, it's a question of how you continue and how you end. Jesus said, he who perseveres to the end will be saved. And what do we have? It says this call that we need to hold to our original confidence, to keep on believing. And then it says we need to exhort and encourage each other how often? Daily. Daily. We need each other, brothers and sisters. We need to encourage each other daily to keep going and keep going and keep going that none of us might be deceived, that none of us might fall by the wayside, that none of us might become utterly discouraged and give up. That's why we're here. That's why we need each other so that we can make it together to the end of the road. And there's one more. One more. What's the most well-known verse in the whole Bible? John 3.16. John 3.16. Excellent. Right before John 3.16, in John 3.14 and 15, it says this, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. That's a strange image for Christ, isn't it? A serpent. Because usually the serpent is a symbol of the devil. But the, the similarity is what? The serpent was lifted up, and anyone who looked to the serpent would be delivered. And Christ was lifted up on the cross, and anyone who looks to Christ will also be delivered. Who was delivered in those days? The rebels were delivered. Those who needed to be delivered. Those who had turned aside. And who can look to Christ and be delivered today? 
rebels. And you might say, oh, I'm not like those people, but do you remember what their primary sin was? Grumbling. Yeah, certainly it was pride. That's the root uh, behind almost everything, or maybe all sins. But what did they do? They simply grumbled about the food time and time again. And they rebelled because they grumbled against their circumstances, which in effect was grumbling against God. But those rebels could look and live. And I say to you, if you too, like me, have been a rebel, turning aside to any of these things to which they turned aside, the good news is this. Christ has been lifted up on the cross. Look to Him and be delivered. Look to Him and live. Let's pray. Our God, we are distressed at this travel log. It's hard to follow for us. All these places they camped. And then we find out why. It was because they grumbled. They turned aside from You. They rebelled. And now we look back at our own lives and we find all of these detours that we have taken as we have turned aside from You multiple times. And even during the day we turn aside in our hearts multiple times. But we thank You that Jesus was lifted up and that any who look to Him may live and be delivered. And I pray, O God, for all of us that we would look to Christ and live and that day after day we would encourage each other, that day after day we would hold fast our confession so that we might enter that promised rest that Jesus has secured for us. And we pray this in His name. Amen. Would you stand for a final good word from God? May the grace of the Lord Jesus, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all, now and forevermore. Amen.